Curtis, why don't you introduce your good good friend Avery here? Yeah, sure thing. We're uh, we're here. I don't know how much of the intro conversation is going to make the uh, the pre roll, but it got pretty technical for a second. Uh, we're here with Avery Johnston, uh, CW three Chief Warrant Officer three Avery Johnston. Uh, Avery's currently an Apache helicopter pilot, but that's not why he's here. He's here because in 2012 he was an OH 58 Delta pilot. And he was uh, flying overhead as part of the Dark Horse call sign that was our uh, close combat attack when we were in Panjway in 2012. So, yeah. Avery, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So, generally, um, when we have people on, we kind of like to start with the, the quick and dirty version of their military career. Like, you know, what were they deployed to, what they were doing. Uh, so, what's the, what's the quick version of how you ended up to wherever you are right now in your own military path? So I flew the Kiowa for seven years, and uh, I'm still currently flying the uh, Apache AH-64. Uh, at the time when I was Dark Horse, I was in a 2-6 cab, uh, repping them out of Hawaii, fighting 6th. Got their beer glass here. Nice. <laughs> um, I went to flight school in 2007. I graduated in 2009, back in the day when flight school took two years because there were a lot of bubbles and a lot of weights. Um, mm -hmm. I initially came in from the Air Force after five and a half years. I was an NCO. I came in to uh, fly the Apache because it was pretty sexy aircraft, pretty cool aircraft. And I, uh, so for that, I'm, I'm kind of lucky that I got to, to fly that aircraft too because I, I, I do like the Apache. Uh, but when I got to meet some of the guys, um, which I'm sure you'll hear about some of these guys, uh, you know, going on in the interview, um, I got to meet some of the Kiowa guys uh, that were there at Fort Rucker. I kind of, I kind of instantly gravitated uh, to them and the mission that they did, and sort of the personality, uh, sort of cav mentality, the doing, uh, doing more with less. Uh, and so I, I made the decision to join that community. I didn't really make the decision to fly that aircraft. It was just to join the community. Um, okay. And then in uh, 2009, went to Lewis. Was there for two and a half years. Uh, wasn't looking like we were going to get a deployment. And then I called uh, Branch and asked him if I could move somewhere that, where, I could, uh, where I could deploy. So I went to Afghanistan. That was my first deployment to Afghanistan, uh, the one that you guys were on when I was uh, affiliated with Dark Horse. Um, I went I went to Hawaii, and I late deployed because I had just gotten there. But um, it worked out. You know, it was it was a it was an interesting deployment, uh, and it was it was an honor to get to work with you guys uh, and a lot of the other ground units that we supported. Yeah, and that's one thing that we uh, we kind of wanted to key in on early on was. You did support us, but we were a very, very small portion of, yeah. of, and not just us as a unit, but Panjway in general. I mean, your your area of responsibility was fairly large, um, and that was one thing when I when I went on to become a pilot that I appreciated more was that our little piece of land at Spurwangar seemed huge to us at the time, but when you kind of pull out on the map, the macro, it was tiny. Like we were such a small part of what was going on out there. Yeah, you guys were one of many battalions that were, you know, that we supported that were a part of our uh, our AOR. Now, on the 2012 deployment, then, like, where all did you end up flying? Because you flew in Panjway, we know that because we could look up and see you flying by. <laughs> but um, what other districts and areas did you end up flying in? 
I would say a majority of the areas that I flew in um, were the Zari and the Panjway, the Zari mm-hmm. District and Panjway. But I did go to uh, Maywan, De Maywan, uh as far out east of the pack border as uh, Spin B, north of Spin B. We did some operations out there. So um, it was a it was a large AOR, but because of the the focused fight, kind of in the area where you guys were uh, in the Panjway and in Zari, a lot of the efforts were were focused there. Yeah. And for people who uh, don't remember, Zari is the district directly to the north of Panjway on the other side of the Argandog River. So they're basically neighbors. So essentially, you know, I mean, the, we weren't, the Taliban we were fighting didn't have AOs. So they didn't have spare one guards and cops. They, uh, they would bounce wherever they needed to go. So I'm sure that those fighters probably came back and forth between those districts uh, district all the time. They would definitely... Um move across the the Argandab uh, quite often yeah. and i think that they use that uh, to their advantage uh, sometimes yeah uh, based off of where our borders were so to speak now this was your first deployment um as a as an aviator and you were fairly fresh i mean you had been at jblm for i guess two and a half years so you weren't a new you weren't a new pilot anymore but this was your this was a new experience for you can you kind of fill us in on what your kind of train up was to go on this deployment, what you had heard before you got there and kind of what it felt like once you got your feet feet under you, once you got there? Well, it wasn't what I expected. I'm not really sure what it was that I expected to be, to be fairly honest. My, my, my gen up for the, for the deployment was very different than most of the people that were there because I came to Hawaii last minute and I wound up, late deploying. So I basically deployed with people I I didn't even know. Um, I basically met everyone there. Uh, there were a few guys that I had, had had the opportunity to meet prior to it, but with block leave and Christmas and then guys leaving right after that, there were, there were a lot of people, uh, even in my own troop, uh, or company for ground guys in our calf that I, I didn't, I didn't know anything about these people. I had never met them, never seen a picture of them. So, uh, it was a little, it was a little interesting. I would say, because I, I didn't really know, um, I didn't know what to expect, really didn't know, I didn't get all the intelligence briefings and stuff that you would normally get going into the AOR that you're going into, um, so that was, I think that made it kind of, uh, made it kind of tough, it was kind of a, it, it kind of added to the complexity of, of, of a first time deployer, because I had, I really didn't. The only people that I really knew was uh, there was a, a lieutenant that I uh, deployed with late, so I got to know him pretty well. So that was a blessing. But yeah, I mean, my my gen looked nothing like theirs. I didn't do a gunnery with them. I didn't get the briefings, right. so it was uh, it was tough. So when you got to to CAF and you got to Kandahar and you started flying, um, did you do you have any memories or any moments where it kind of sinks in that this was going to be a pretty pretty wild ride for you in terms of the intensity of the deployment and when, especially when uh, the fighting season really started to kick off. Well, I think the thing that stuck out to me, because, you know, at this point in time, I had no experience regarding a deployment. I think the one thing that stuck out to me was we were fighting as soon as we got there. And I had heard, you know, that there's a fighting season, right? Like you used the term, but it seemed like for us, I mean, we were busy from day one. There was, Fighting season was the day we landed and got off the aircraft and, yeah. and started flying. And this is in February, you said? 
Yeah, I got there in February. Uh, okay. Many of the people in my unit got there uh, January into February, the very beginning of February. I can't remember the exact date I arrived there, but I think I arrived 20-ish of February. So I think yeah, that's one of the things that was kind of unique about that area of Afghanistan. I think it was twofold. I suspect I'm going to get a, do a little conjecture here. Um, one is that I think the Taliban knew that we were going to be pulling out at the end of that year. So, I mean, obviously it was highly highly covered in the news media and stuff like that. So I think they wanted to make that last year count. And then another aspect of it was uh, because we weren't in the mountains, they didn't get snowed in. The passes didn't get snowed in and they weren't bouncing back and forth between mountain passes to Pakistan. So they, they could maneuver year round in that area of Afghanistan. I think that's why the fighting season never ended for us. You know, we got into our first firefight three weeks after getting there. And we stayed, and I mean, we literally, our last firefight was just a couple, three days before we left the cop. So it was a constant thing for us as well. Yeah, I'd agree. There was a lot of movement uh, regarding smuggling, uh, even early in the year. You know, things that you would never see, like you said, in, in Nangahar, places like that, where the passes get snowed in, and there's just no movement at that point. And that was due to the Registan to the south, which is just open country between there and the Pakistani border. So, a lot of open country, just not yeah. like sand dunes. <laughs> the, yeah. the openest of countries. And <laughs> I kind of wonder, and I'm gonna, we don't have to record, we don't have to uh, include this interview, but I'm just kind of curious. I wonder if they actually drove through Registan or they just come up to, like, to the east there. No, they came through oh, the Registan. Oh, yeah. We used to oh, catch yeah. them all the time smuggling. We would look for lights. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they were they were definitely uh, up there. They had like there's like training camps out there in the middle of the Registan. Really? Yeah. I never yeah, saw those, wild. but I heard I heard yeah. that there were. Yeah. So uh, I mean, that's one of those things that yeah. So they could year round they could just drive across the desert and bring in arms, bring in fighters from Pakistan, and and um, that's something that Curtis, you and I should actually do a little bit later on as a standalone because what I'm finding is that when we start going down a rabbit hole with the, especially with our fellow veterans, we get lost in the minutia and the kind of the lingo of, of a de- combat deployment. And a lot of the details get lost on folks. So we get a little backtracking on the back end, but it's all good. Now, Avery, your, uh, your mission as you chose to accept it in, <laughs> uh, in Kandahar was, was, was twofold, correct? Yeah. It was basically broken down into two missions. There were a lot of different missions, of course, within those, but it was essentially a response to troops in contact, and then it was the uh, the counter IED fight too. And we'll we'll spend a lot of time talking about the the troops in contact. So it's I just kind of like what like to hear what your role in the counter IED fight was at that time. Um, what did that look then, like? What that looked like for you? Because obviously, it's going to be weird for guys to think that the helicopters were a part of the counter IED fight. Um, especially for the guys that were down there like me with a freaking metal detector trying not to get my legs blown off. So what was it? What was your part of that fight? Well, I'd start off by saying that I don't think anybody envied uh, the minesweep guy. (laughs) (laughs) Always watched him and just thought to myself, I really am glad that I'm not doing that right now. (laughs) Um, That or the the husky drivers, Uh, the, uh, the mine finders, so to speak. Um, so our job in, in the counter ID fight was, um, there were several uh, facets of that. One would have been, um, 
obviously looking for people putting IEDs in, which uh, doesn't does not happen uh, very often, and particularly during the day, as far as seeing them, because usually we were really busy with the with the other side of the the role with troops in contact, as you know. But you know, we we did find them sometimes. You believe it or not. Um, Saw a guy, for example, outside of Zangabad at like high noon burying an IED. I was like, this guy's really serious. It's noon. Did he not think <laughs> we were coming in and we're doing uh, some uh, some armed security uh, for some uh, some some hawks that were coming in? I think it was a single hawk. And I looked down and this guy was standing in the middle of the road with a shovel, you know, and it was probably noon or 1 o'clock. I mean, it was middle of the day. And I thought, wow, that's that's a first for that one. And that would be a first, uh, one of many firsts in Afghanistan. But um, we would at night look to look for guys p- uh, putting in stuff. A lot of them would work around the the areas you know where you guys would walk around the uh, collots and the wall structures. Um, we would look for guys that were suspicious uh, putting stuff, maybe put stuff in or hanging out in an area where at you know twelve o'clock at night Afghanis don't typically hang out. Um, right. So that was really our role in the counter ID uh, regarding uh, the, the reconnaissance effort portion of it. And then there was the other side, which was the, the target prosecution. And that was something that we worked very closely with uh, the ground, uh, the ground elements uh, and our own aircraft, obviously, once it was time to, to prosecute targets. And that's a, a very technical term for saying that you were you were smoking dudes once <laughs> you got approval, right? We were prosecuting targets. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I would stick with that statement as, yeah, as, as said. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. We can, we can, uh, commentate. Um, so, I mean, that's, I, I have a very distinct memory of that portion of your guys' mission because at the very end of our deployment, there was one guy and this guy was like the freaking James Bond of IED and placers. Because he was he he woke up at the same time every day, turned his IEDs on on the same route every day, and he knew just where to step, like what mosques and villages to walk into to avoid getting shot at. And he was so frustrating because like our I know our guys and our talk were watching this guy do it every day. I know you guys were watching him do it every day. Um, my understanding is that you guys did get him eventually. But, I mean, it took months of watching this guy, the most disciplined IED in place in Afghanistan, and just, I don't know, is that something that you can shed a little bit more light on? I'm trying to think of the individual, the exact individual. I can't, uh, I don't know if I can recall that exact individual, but we had names for a lot of them. I mean, we we received uh, intelligence from ground and from, from uh, uh from surveillance platforms. Um, and we would kind of watch to see how they, how they did things and we would find where their vulnerabilities were. And that's when we would take advantage of of their vulnerability, excuse me, vulnerabilities. Um, yeah. Now just saying that there's several of them that, that, uh, stick out in, in, uh, in my mind. We had, uh, one guy we called uh, the pod piper. Um, (laughs) I'm not 100% sure why that was his name, but, you know, we would give names to these guys. Um, there was the infamous uh, uh, little person, so to speak, that we <laughs> thought was a kid for many, many days until we discovered that that child had a beard. 
So, yeah. <laughs> um, well, we went down in uh, several aircraft. I mean, several of us saw him uh, on different, uh, different, uh, different airframes and different, uh, air crews. So he became, uh, sort of infamous. And I know that he was well known among y'all as well. Yeah. And that was, uh, that, well, he stuck out because he was the only little person probably in the entire district of Panjway. And he had a reputation of being a pretty nasty IND emplacer. And uh, I had the fortune to actually see this guy one time. Um, he was at the bazaar just north of Kyber, like a little small bazaar. And he kind of rounded the corner on our patrol. And I think he's like, he's just the meanest looking little fucker there ever was, man. I mean, he had like the death stare down. And he almost looked like he was from Pakistan. He had like really dark skin and, and uh, the, you know, the big black beard and stuff. And this guy had, uh, I'd actually forgotten about him, to be honest with you, until we started talking about it the other day. And that jogged my memory of seeing him that one time. He hightailed it pretty quick. So, you know, he knew people were on to him. But uh, that was funny oh, to actually see that guy. And then uh, it wasn't too long before he, he met his demise. Yeah, you, you can't be a Taliban midget. Like, no. I'm sorry. Like, you, just you, could, you could blend into the population pretty easily in Afghanistan if you're not a midget. Or a dwarf, or whatever the PC term for the poor guy is. <laughs> uh, but like, I'm sorry if you're Taliban and you're a midget. Like, you just sentence like almost every midget in Afghanistan to death, and there's like seven of them. So like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's I don't prob- know if I've it's seen, probably seen not one since on another deployment. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a culture that really. I, I feel like it's not would a allow that's uh, very accommodating of no of dwarfism. No, I don't. I don't imagine too many of them make it to adulthood. So, yeah. if you're an he adult, was, he was a terrorist. unicorn, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> rest in peace. And he had magical powers. Yeah, rest pieces. in pieces. Rest in pieces. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> he had what was coming to him on the back end of a hellfire. And as a treat right. to our watchers of the YouTube version of the podcast, here it is. He's getting smoked because <laughs> I have it on video. You're welcome. And, and now we're banned. And now we're banned. That's fine. <laughs> hey, better, you're at least demonetized. Demonetized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, I'm sure we're already demonetized. Oh, we we're not monetized it. yet. We don't have enough viewers. We'll get there eventually. So the the ID uh, the ID role or the counter ID mission was part of y'all's you know mission set while you were there, but also and the important one for us is the troops in contact mission. Um, one of the things that you know it's important to convey to an audience is that. The OH is 58 Delta, right? Correct. Is my nomenclature correct? Uh, The Kiowa. First try. Nice work. (laughs) (laughs) The Kiowa is is one of those platforms where it's not like an Apache where it's, you know, however many thousand feet up in the air. It's not an F-16 where they go by going 700 miles an hour. This is a bird that's low to the ground that does cast close air support that's, you know, doing strafing runs and stuff like that. And one of the things that for grunts on the ground, seeing an aircraft come in and strafe a tree line or launch rockets or whatever, and it's so close that you can almost see the guy who's flying its face, there's a point of connection there where it's like, uh, it's, I often refer to the Kiowa as the A-10 of rotary wing. So it's, you know, it's it's the same, it's a similar connection because the Kiowa, because it's so intimate and close up to the fight, you're able to see things almost to, from that ground perspective. and you know, you talked about the community and how that attracted you. I'm assuming that that idea of like ground guys first is probably a part of that community, right? Absolutely. I think that was the forefront of that community. Um, I learned from some of the old hats, you know, that 
give the ground guy what he needs. That's our job, yeah. you know, and even if it means putting yourself at jeopardy or putting yourself in harm's way or putting your aircraft between you and the rounds and, and the ground guy, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes that happened and that community was, uh, I, I, I feel very fortunate to have served with them. Um, uh, the people in particularly in, in, uh, in chaos troop, uh, which was part of dark horse. We had two troops there at Kandahar and, uh, w- one was up at, I believe Wolverine. Cool. Um, that's what, um, you know, one of the things for us is like as ground guys, I mean, I wouldn't want to be in that aircraft. I can get behind a wall if I'm getting shot at, but the helicopter's just a bullet magnet. And if you're 200 feet off the ground, that that's no time for a, you know, 762 to travel. So, you know, you guys are exposing yourself to fire. Um, you know, fortunately, bad guys don't shoot ducks. Fortunately, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But, um, you know, you guys are coming in close. And, like, one of the things that happened more than once on our deployment was Kiowa pilots would come in and drop off cases of water or Gatorade. Or you said you had, you threw out some Copenhagen to some guys one time. So there's just a point of connection there. Um, so, with that being said, one of the things that we talked about in the pre-interview that I found kind of interesting that I hadn't really thought about before is from my perspective, a firefight was a beginning culminating moment and end. But for you, because you were getting bounced all around the AO or AOR, if you're in aviation, I guess, um, to all these different troops in contact, you would show up middle of the firefight, middle of the situation. So you kind of had to create a picture for yourself flying in there. So like, walk us through that process and what that kind of looked like for you in just an average day flying around Panjway or Zari. So we would, uh, you know, pre-flight, get our brief, kind of find out where people were in, in their different AOs. Uh, we kind of had uh, certain areas of responsibility, so larger areas of responsibility. Um, Zari, Panjway was kind of one of them. Um, called it, we called it at the time security zone. Uh, that, that I'm sure has changed a hundred times. Um, after we pre-flight, we go out there and take off. We had a block uh, of time that we were responsible for that AO and anything that happened in it was our responsibility to, uh, to take care of, uh, regarding, uh, CCA, et cetera. We'd fly out to Passab. I would, uh, get my morning donut and my rippet because they always had the good rippets. <laughs> uh, and from there, you know, we would take off and we would, Go find the frontline trace of the guys that were out there, find out where they were, what they were doing, put our eyes on what they were doing. Um, and what's uh, what's frontline trace, Dan? Well, what, is, what is that? What does that term mean for people? It just that means wherever, wherever those guys are at the time in, the, in their movement. Right. It's like their, their GPS location or their furthest forward element. Yeah, they'd give us their GPS location. And, and we knew a lot of y'all's. Uh, call signs frequencies i mean hell we recognize your voices on the radio most of the time you know i got to know some of the rtos and some of the uh jtacs with certain units uh so we would basically go around and uh, start the day off by just uh if if it wasn't a bad situation already uh we would start the day off and just kind of kind of uh, go down the argandab and check into mushan cop lion uh, Sia Choi, uh, you guys up at Spurwingar, Gundigar. We would just swing by and uh, let everybody know, hey, this is the crew that's in the air, and you know we're ready, we're ready when we, you need us. And uh, it would just start that way. We would just know where every everybody kind of was outside the wire, and from there things would happen. I mean, you you guys know when you went up 
you guys couldn't even get off route brown before they were shooting at you guys half the time you know so we were we were ready for it you know yeah for sure so we you know if we uh did i fuck up my acronyms earlier cas is from fixed wing right it is yeah close air support okay and cca is from which is close combat air close combat attack attack okay yeah military and acronyms <laughs> yeah essentially the difference between it is a, one's a five line essentially and one's a nine line okay nine line but, um, is a lot more descriptive you know you got to give target elevation and all that and then you have three types of control for it so that we're digging into the weeds though i don't want to get too far down yeah. <laughs> no, we wouldn't get, we won't i'll get break out my my, my, uh, my j fire j fire quick when we start using <laughs> yeah. gravity but uh, you know one thing for us is you know you guys would show up and if you're talking to, a, you know, an RTO or an LT or something on the horn, and they're basically trying to paint a picture, a picture for you, right? It's like 200 meters to the north, you know, this clot on the blue smoke or things like that. So if you're showing up in the middle of a firefight, you know, I mean, how many times did you come in just guns blazing? How many times did you have to, you know, do a loop or two and then come in and see what happened? I mean, what did that look like? Um, so first roll-in shooting as soon as we got there within, you know, literally coming in, getting ready to shoot. Uh, that happened. That happened, uh, I would say, several times, more than several. Uh, but typically, that was directly affected by the uh, ground's ability to paint a picture to us prior to getting there. So, um and also the number of people on the ground in the operation and that created a, a different kind of complexity for that. So we had to be very careful. Obviously we don't want to have a CIFCAS incident or a, uh, a friendly, a friendly shoot. We don't want to have fratricide. So yeah, I mean, if it was just a small patrol and you guys had accountability, all your people and you knew where the rounds were coming from and you were able to give me a, a solid talk on and we used you know target reference points throughout the AO too you know so we you guys had a lot of little spots and towns that you guys hey you know where this place is and we just started uh making a TRP really the the key to it I will say kind of fell on the pilots too and it was our responsibility to really know all of the ground guys AOs and and just know them like the back of our hands and that takes a lot of studying and it takes a lot of time when you're out there really focusing on if you're not doing anything, you should be uh, practicing that. So, I mean, you were you were familiar with the, the town names as as we were. So like Sketcha, Najat, Adam's Eye, like, you know, when you were flying overhead, if, if we said Adam's Eye, you knew where that was. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to go to Najat, all you got to do is go north on Brown, east up Hyena, approximately four clicks. Yeah. There. Yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> Just I haven't the, seen the that map or where that place is in nine years. I mean, it, yeah. it's crazy how much, uh, it tells you how much flying you guys actually did there because you can just jog that off the top of your memory, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's almost like it's weird for me because we had that, well, the ground level view, but you had that bird's eye view. And it's interesting to think how you, how you, you engage with that space, how you conceived of it and thought of it, it had to be. Hey, we knew Najat was a bad place. You guys knew Najat was a bad place, but you guys' version of seeing Najat as a bad place was different than ours, right? Yeah, we just knew stick south of it. Uh, don't directly fly over it. I mean, they, they, yeah. they'll shoot at you every time. Yeah. <laughs> At least yeah. make it hard. It was funny when I went back and uh, 
in 17, we were doing a route reconnaissance over the Panduay District Center, and we were turning circles right over Najat. Now, granted, this is 17, and nothing, nothing's going on in Panduay at the time because you know, there was a peace. Um, I'm sorry, they kicked the Taliban out. Um, yeah, they're gone. Yeah, they're totally <laughs> gone. Uh, but <laughs> I can't remember who my backseater was. But he was turning pretty tight circles, like real low. I was like, you need to come up a little bit, bud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Still scarred from that one. Yeah, yeah. It was cool. It was, it was wild to see it from the air and to kind of, I mean, granted, it's it's even different from an Apache to a Kiowa. Sure. You know, because our, our, like like Luke keyed in on, we don't fly as low. Um, and it's not that we don't ever do that. We do. But our weapon systems aren't geared for that kind of fight. It doesn't do us any good to be five feet above the trees because we can't use our weapon systems effectively at that range. Um, so we spend a lot of time higher up, which, you know, has its pluses and minuses, but it has it's a completely different understanding of the battlefield. So even though I did get to fly over Panjway, I didn't get to fly over Panjway the way that Avery or, you know, the 58 drivers did because it's just a completely different mission set. And also we weren't supporting anybody in that area. It was peaceful. And so one of the things that we always had going on was the pink teams. So give us the give us the description of what a pink team is, Avery. The pink team. The most amazing thing on earth. <laughs> <laughs> Loved flying pink teams. And so the pink team is uh I think they get the color uh from the red and the cav flag, and then the white and the attack flag. I think mm-hmm. that's how they, they came up with that. Uh, don't quote me. Um, the pink team is an attack helicopter, so the Apache, the H-64 uh, Delta at the time. Uh, now we got the Echoes out. And the uh, OH-58 Delta. And we uh, we basically, to make to summarize it, we would just go down and stir shit up. And then call Big Brother to come in and take care take care of business, and we'd we'd clean up uh, clean up the remnants. Um, very efficient and effective way uh, to to engage the enemy. I think that that pink teams were the most effective uh, tool that we had in aviation with regards to uh, target prosecution uh, and reconnaissance uh, simultaneously. Um, some people may argue that fact, but I, I really found that the paint teams. Uh, whenever I went out on a paint team, uh, it was it was exhilarating. I knew we were out there to go after it. We were out there to hunt. And that was the, that's a Vietnam tactic that was kind of brought back from the dead. Yep, started off with the uh, Cobras and the uh, the Loaches, the old mm-hmm. school OH sixes. Yeah, uh, and actually, I think that they even they may have even used Huey gunships in some of those two. Uh, from time to time, but it was predominantly the uh, OH sixes and the uh, Cobra pilots. And uh, for the viewers out there that uh, don't really know a lot about aviation or historically uh, a lot about aviation, uh, those pilots flew both of those aircraft. So if you were rated in the Cobra, you were also rated in the OH six. Uh, a lot of them flew uh, both aircraft in Vietnam, which is real cool. We don't we don't do that in the army anymore. The the gold the golden age of army aviation, <laughs> at, le- at least in yeah. terms of the fun factor. Probably not so much on the survivability side. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, back in the day when you could get shot down three times in the same day, and they'd give you the give you the fourth aircraft. You know, yeah. <laughs> very different uh, experience. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's an interesting tactic, and it's it's a capability that we've lost 
unfortunately, um, by by divesting the uh, the Kiowa, which went away in 2016, if I remember correctly, is when they finally put them out to pasture. I don't remember the exact date. Uh, I know my my last flight in the Kiowa was uh, October of uh, 2015, and they were uh, pretty short lived after that. Honestly, I mean, we said this many times. We'll probably continue to keep saying it, it was the most important thing to us. That we felt at the time to us getting home safely. And I, you know, there's no uh, count how many times we got home safely because of the, the 58 guys. Um, so I wanted to go back to that, that tick discussion, the troops in contact. Um, what, what was it, you know, so you, you did your flight from Kandahar to Pasab air base, which was a refueling station just North of the, uh, just Northern North end Azari. Um, and then from there, you just kind of waited for it to kick off. And what was what was like a typical day, like three, four, five troops in contact, like kind of describe what that was like to just move back and forth. So a typical a typical day. Um, yeah, at least four or five. We didn't always shoot. Um, right. Sometimes we would show up and, it, you know, it was a twig and troops were in contact. Mm. But a lot of times we would we, we were we were able to make it there uh, and affect the battlefield for them, and even if that was just with rotor noise, right. I mean the enemies knew when we showed up that if they kept fighting, uh, we would diminish that will to want to do that. Right. So we would show up, and sometimes they would just stop shooting, and they would they would retreat. And they would move among the civilian population. So at that point in time, unless we had really good ISR or, uh, you know, PGIS, sometimes we, we, we weren't able to follow them. Yeah. So it was kind of, they would kind of get away with it. But the, the goal was to be in the area kind of trolling, waiting for that call. So we were already airborne. We were already ready to respond. And uh, a lot of times that proved to be uh, very beneficial to the, to the ground people. Uh, the ground people, like you guys, like live in Crunch, crunchies. <laughs> we don't really think of you to, in, a, in a bad light like that. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's, it's like a Dune episode, right? Uh, yeah, right. No, we, we like to be able to respond quickly because even if we weren't able to uh, necessarily uh, prosecute the target, we were able to affect uh, the battle with you and allow you guys the ability to to maneuver or not be pinned down. So re- regardless of what, what we did when we got there, it was always really, uh, it was always really rewarding to show up and be able to, to help you guys out. Uh, that was a typical day was four or five. I mean, some days were like 10 troops in contact, you know, 12 troops in contact. Um, we, we worked with a lot of guys, you know, and like I told you, you know, uh, when we did the pre-interview, just kind of discussing it, we, we only got that snippet in time with you. I mean, I may only show up to your troops in contact for five minutes. Uh, maybe, maybe we shoot, maybe we don't. Uh, but at that point in time, uh, you guys are no longer in contact. Uh, you guys have a good support by fire position. You guys have moved to a position where you guys have cover and concealment. So now we move on because in our in our earpiece, you know, it's something else is happening somewhere else because so now we're leaving. Um, so many times, you know, there were very few times that I can remember in that deployment where we saw an operation through from from conception uh, and planning uh, all the way through uh, execution and end state. It's very, very, uh, very 
odd to, to have ever experienced that. And I can honestly say I don't think I ever actually did on that deployment, uh, which was something that I, I got the chance to do later in, an, in another deployment. And I mean, can you think of a single day where you didn't have a troops in contact? I mean, like during, obviously when you got there, you were doing your training flights and stuff, but like once you got on the ground running. You know, once we had the AO and the AO was ours, that, you know, there may have been one, uh, there may have been several, but off the top of my head, I, I can't think of a single day that someone didn't get shot at somewhere. It was yeah. a very busy AO. I mean, you guys, you guys were a very small piece uh, in the cog. Oh yeah, you know your company, uh, and not to diminish what you guys did because you guys did some pretty incredible operations. But there were so many people that were out mm-hmm. there doing these uh, these operations uh, in so many places uh, that, yeah, it, it, I, I don't think so, man. I I, I can't say with certainty, and nor would I, but. Man, we were busy. We were really busy. I mean, and I guess another part of that whole mission is medevac. You know, a medevac bird comes in. They they need you there to to clear the LZ or protect the aircraft when they come in because they're they're defenseless. Um, I mean, can you can you remember many times where you where you performed that mission or when it felt like you were kind of the last line between some of those guys getting out of there? Yeah, we had certain places. Uh... First of all, uh, medevac aside, certain places that uh, our task force had deemed uh, we shouldn't allow, you know, the 60s or the 47s, the lift aircraft uh, that were transporting uh, people and uh, and supplies to go in without armed escort because they were just hotbeds. It just so happened your cop was one of them. <laughs> Weird. Wait, so they couldn't come to the cop at all without an armed escort? I can't go into detail how we determined, um, but typically they were required an escort. And it was based off of uh, directions. Yeah, threat reporting. Uh, coming inbound, like travel, yeah. time, all those all those sorts of things uh, without yeah. getting into the weeds of it or also into anything that may be classified, which at this point I doubt. But, um, right. And then, of course, the medevac side. Uh, now that we, you know, kind of spoken about the lift side a little bit, a uh, little bit. Um, yeah, there were many times uh, where we would we would be on station because typically in a troops in contact, we're we're on station. Now we're fighting with you guys. Um, somebody steps on an IED. Uh, somebody takes a sucking chest wound. Whatever the case may be that requires uh, a medevac. Now we've not only taken on the role of protecting the ground commander, but also the, the aircraft that's coming inbound to take that person that's injured out. And how did that, how did that feel to have that kind of that responsibility? Because I mean, on the ground, we could do very little to protect that aircraft. I mean, we could protect our casualty on the ground and we could continue to, to engage the enemy. But as far as that aircraft coming in, like you guys were that, you guys were the, the force that was ensuring that they could land safely and take off safely and get our guy back. So how, how did that kind of drive your actions on the objective? Well, it was controlled chaos. I mean, I'm sure you guys were experiencing that tenfold on the ground. It definitely added complexity. And we didn't, nor did the, the medevac pilots and, uh, you know, 
don't tell anybody I said this, but I've got a lot of respect for medevac pilots. They go in that aircraft and they land in a, in a hot LZ and they're unarmed and they, they really rely on us to make sure right, uh, that they're safe. And I think that takes, uh, I think that takes a, a lot of guts, yeah. a lot of guts. So as much shit as I give the medevac pilots, uh, you know, uh, those guys, uh, they, de- they deserve, uh, the kudos that they get for what they do. Um, the complexity of the whole thing, just, it just gets worse. You know, the more things you add into that situation, the, the, the more dangerous it becomes kind of for everybody. Um, if that, if that aircraft goes down or we go down, we're shot down. Now we become the main effort. Um, you guys are, you still haven't made your situation any better. Um, Still got a guy that's injured. Still needs to get him out, get him out of there. But uh, now, now the dynamics have changed. So I'll tell you honestly, Curtis, on that deployment, uh, I did a lot of growing up. A lot. The responsibility weighed heavily, and I think it did for all the guys. And it wasn't me in particular, or an action that I did. It was. I'm telling you, um, you had some of the, the finest pilots I've ever flown with uh, on that deployment. Um, some of my mentors and people that I still stay in contact with. So that kind of, that kind of made me who I am both as a man and as a pilot. It's nice that we can have this conversation in that I, I ended up becoming a pilot too. And one thing always kind of stood out to me was like when you're in the aircraft and you're flying, especially if the mission is incredibly complex, you know, you're compartmentalizing anything. So if really bad things are happening on the ground, you don't really have the time to process like oh man he's that guy's dead or he his that guy's leg is blown off it's like no there's fire coming from here and i have to take care of that so that the medevac can come in so that they can clear the ao you're constantly problem solving and what i always noticed was that your brain doesn't really turn off until like you know you, you punch the clock and you're heading back to the to to your mandatory rest which is best part of it warm aviation by far is you have to actually get some sleep. <laughs> um, but for yes. me, that, that that's when those kind of things would always hit me. It would be at the end of the day because I couldn't, I didn't, I couldn't afford to think, dwell on those kind of things until you know we're back and a post flight is done and we have turned in our tapes and we've done our sworn statements and we've logged our hours and we've done all the millions of things that we have to do at the end of the day. But at the after that is when that stuff would kind of hit me personally when we were supporting you know guys down in Nangahar or down in Chapman. Um, was, was it a similar experience to you? Yeah. So, you know, just quiet reflection, you know, your, your brain slows down, your body slows down and you, you can't help but have quiet time to think about what it is you're doing and what you did that day and, and how that's affecting you. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you the, the worst thing for me overall was, uh, you know, the single and the double and the trip amps and. You know, I saw a lot of American soldiers lose their legs and their limbs. And I saw it, I won't say every day, but I mean, I saw it a lot of days. You know, and I think a lot of the guys I flew with did too. I wasn't I wasn't uh, special in that. I would say that probably was one of the things that affected me the most. I would wonder if they had, you know, a family or, you know, if they had a girlfriend or like what their situation was, what they were going home to, were they going to make it? And I actually walked down the roll three a couple times there at Kandahar, you know. And uh, I remember contacting, uh, contacting. actually you contacted me as a ground guy. Uh, and I remember you telling me about how the guys were doing uh, in your company. 
uh, that have been uh, hit by IEDs. I'm just, you know, you, you feel guilty because you're flying above it all. Um, there's a lot of risk with what we do. I, I won't take that away from pilots, but I myself personally kind of felt guilty having to see uh, just the kind of conditions that you guys were fighting through every day. And, and I was getting ready to, you know, I was flying back to, you know, a hot cot. You know, it, it wasn't as bad as you guys had it. And, and I was aware of that. And, it, and, it, and it, there, was a, there was a lot of guilt. I'll be honest with you. I think that was one thing that uh, was real difficult for me. And I think we, you know, Curtis, uh, for those of you guys that are listening, and I have become uh, pretty good friends over the years. Uh, he became a pilot. But I will say, Curtis and I, you, you, I know that you and I have had a lot of candid conversations about that. And I think that that's, uh, I think you got to see it as a pilot too, um, seeing the ground guys down there. Uh, they got it worse than we do. So we just got to remember that. It's important to keep that perspective. Um, you know, and, and the infantry has this tendency or privilege of being a stepping stone to a lot of other things. So, you know, tons of infantry guys flying helicopters, tons of you know, special forces, rangers, you know, tier one units, uh, specialized jobs in the military. Uh, a lot of guys come from the infantry or a ground combat, you know, cab scout tanker kind of um, background. And, uh, you know, a lot of times that does take you to a place that's a lot more comfortable or where you get better toys or better equipment. It's, it's really important that, you know, those of you that have moved on from your infantry or you're, you know, doing stuff with, three-letter agencies or flying helicopters like look back and remember what it was like to be pfc snuffy <laughs> getting your butt smoked every time you you know spelled something wrong or whatever it's um it, that that perspective is really really important and for army leaders it's you know eventually you become a lieutenant colonel or you know captain or whatever try not to forget what it was like to be that guy because those that's the majority of our army overwhelmingly we were talking about Curtis just kind of jogged my memory, you know, kind of about uh, remembering where he came from and, you know, understanding the, the circumstances that people are, are living in. And I remember, and I don't know why this makes me think of this, but I, I think it's kind of funny. It's not funny. The guy survives, though, and, and it is okay. I mean, he may have TBI. Who, who knows? I don't know. But uh, everybody knows that being the Husky driver – is a terrible job. I mean, I think I think we can all probably agree with that. That's got to be the worst uh, 88 Mike job out there. And and for the uninitiated, a Husky is basically, it, it's a mine finder. It's a vehicle. It's designed to be blown to pieces, but in yeah, such a it, way that it protects the crew yeah. compartment. The but crew it, compartment's like, like a capsule. Yeah, it's wild. So looking. I got to see that work. Yeah. Uh, yeah this kid is he's doing he's doing his mind clearing and he gets hit and uh this was north of uh spinby and just huge boom you know you know how it is up in the aircraft you can feel the concussion and mm -hmm. you, um, you know, immediately swing your head around to what what you're looking at and uh i'll never forget it man this uh this kid this, this vehicle just got blown to shit i mean just it it was i was like in my mind there was no way this kid had survived or that's a kid i mean a grown man or a woman I, I didn't know at the time but this guy gets out of this door like swings open on the capsule and he gets out and he sits on it and he pulls a cigarette out and he lights it it's like <laughs> i'll smoke him if you got him i guess <laughs> oh man i will never oh, forget man. that that was 
I remember seeing that and thinking to myself, man, I probably smoke one right now too, buddy. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we we mentioned it in earlier episodes when the first time I got blown up, like you know, our truck was demolished. And like our exo is like, push through, push through. <laughs> our team leader is like, have you seen our fucking truck? And we just kicked <laughs> the doors open. We all had cigars. And we we're just like, just, and we couldn't get out of the truck because of secondaries. So we're just like sitting in the truck, just like rolling down some freaking definitely not Cuban cigars, waiting for EOD to come clear around the vehicle. <laughs> you can't get Cuban cigars unless you're in Cuba. Yeah, I definitely couldn't buy them at the Kandahar Boardwalk. <laughs> no, they weren't there at all. <laughs> uh, you know, Curtis and I actually had a tradition of, uh, at least while the cigars lasted, of if, if we got into a really thick gunfight, or, or if it was like a really heavy day, but we came back and everybody was everybody was good, you know, no casualties or anything, we would smoke a cigar. Yeah. Yeah, we kept that tradition alive until the cigars ran out. We actually had a couple guys that smoked pipes. Man, I really? forgot. I know. I was like, what are we doing here? Like, is this a thing? Like They're like, like, you need to get a pipe. Way. I was like, no, I'm not going to no, smoke It's a, a lot of work. Look at you back there. <laughs> Gee, yeah, right Christmas, there. man. I call this my Gandalf pipe. <laughs> and then I've got this. You're so regal. That should be like a permanent prop every time we do one of these episodes. You just always, yeah, see? Right. Adds a lot. It's true. Me and Curtis used to smoke cigars after every patrol. You look like your IQ raised at least 15 points. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, we could argue. We could talk literature if you like. You know, yeah. the funny thing is, is that, uh, you know, I chew Copenhagen. So every time I put it in, in my lip, my, uh, my, uh, my IQ point lowers uh, 15 is what somebody told me. Like, <laughs> right. Like, oh, yeah, you but if like you put that same tobacco into a pipe, it goes up. Yeah, what's that about? Right. What is that about? <laughs> we don't have to spit as much. I, I guess that's seen as, uh, you know, kind of dirty. Yeah, I think the spitting is what kind of brings down the, brings the class down. Of, yep. uh, chew. of chew. Yeah, but if you have a spitter that has its Valentine's Day spitter with hearts on it, you're gold. Yeah, well, now, yeah, <laughs> now you're back up. So what What about, I mean, uh, are there are there any, like, days that come to mind when you think about that that deployment that time in Afghanistan that really stands out to you well I mean there there's a lot of them to be honest uh, a couple of them that kind of stand out to me is uh, the one day when we found the guy with the icon in the, uh, in the three trees in the tree. or yeah there are three trees I mean I tell you there's nothing else around man I mean there's a building a courtyard and three trees outside of it. There is nothing else. And this guy thought it was a good idea to go to the top of this tree and recon for his buddies and use an icon and telling them where the Americans were and they were they were shooting at them. I mean, when I say nothing around, I mean like for kilometers. Yeah. So you can imagine that that probably didn't end well for him, and he was probably pretty easy to. To pinpoint, we were a little shocked to find a, a guy in a tree, though. Uh, so he didn't he didn't make it. <laughs> you um, you uh, would you say what was the word you used earlier? Prosecuted, prosecuted the target. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> that target was absolutely prosecuted, <laughs> and uh, and it was not prosecuted uh, by me. It was prosecuted by our our, our wingman, and uh, 
out out the door with an M4, if I remember correctly. Nope, that was a uh, that was a fifty cow to the shrubs. Ooh, I remember that nice shot. Oh, that guy uh, again. You know, I'll keep his I'll keep his name out of it, but yeah, he was one of our better one of our better shooters by far. He, nice. he taught me a lot. So for that individual out there, if you see this podcast, uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one thing that always stood out about the uh, the Kiowa versus the Apache is the Kiowa is all fixed gun, fixed weapon systems. So the Apache has all these computers and they uh, they can adjust the aiming of the pylons and they can give you an aiming solution. And like it could it does a lot of the work for you. You still have to be a good aviator. You still have to be a good shooter, and you still have to know your shit. Um, but the aircraft helps you a lot. The Kiowa is like the wild west of attack helicopters. Like grease pencil on the windshield. Like you have to know your ranges. You have to know the gun on that aircraft. Um, so I have a, I have a lot of respect for the Kiowa guys because they had they took professionalism with their weapon systems to a completely different level. So you had to be a good pilot, and you had to be good at putting that aircraft in position to shoot because it was one and the same you couldn't didn't have somebody in the front seat shooting a gun that had a ballistics solution you had to you had to really drive those bullets on the target yeah it was uh i i like to tell people all the time i was like uh have you ever been deer hunting and they're like yeah i've been deer hunting i was like now imagine strapping uh that 30 odd six duct taping it to the side of the the driver's door of the razor (laughs) and trying to shoot the (laughs) Yeah, so it takes uh, it takes some time to get used to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I had I, I had a lot of really great teachers, man, a lot of great mentors. Uh, that that unit was uh, chocked full of them. Um, you know, my my SPs and the IPs in my unit, uh, the the senior guys like the TAC ops guy uh, was really good too. He was an amazing shot actually, uh, and all the MTPs and uh, some, some of the more senior PCs. You know, they really. Um, they demanded excellence, um, and uh, we had a great task force commander that demanded excellence of us too. And uh, if you had a bad uh, shoot, and not, when I say bad shoot, I don't mean you shot uh, the wrong person or something, but you missed your target sure. uh, on your initial pass. You were subject to scrutiny, and and that was a good thing. You know, it was always done professionally. It was never. Uh, it, it was it was never done in a negative light, but it was it was made readily apparent to everyone uh, that uh, fuck ups would not be tolerated. There are different 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 configurations that you could have had on the the fifty eight. You could either have a gun and a rocket and or a gun and <clears throat> missiles. Correct? Uh, we could do rocket rocket. Uh, okay. We could do uh, gun left side rocket right, uh, or we could do uh, hellfire gun or hellfire rocket. Okay. Uh, the typical, um, when you saw an SWT out there, a scout weapons team, so two aircraft, a 58 is what you typically saw. Uh, and, and this changes based on unit, but what we were typically uh, loading, what was put out was we would have a uh, 50 rocket, 50 hellfire. So we had a precision weapon system sure. uh, with the rocket, or excuse me, with the, uh, with the, with the missile. Uh, typically, we were flying with uh, that deployment. We were flying with Kilo Two Alphas, which is a dual warhead Hellfire, uh, and it has a frag sleeve, so that when you would hit uh, people in the open, uh, the fragmentation would would, uh, 
and also the spall from the actual hellfire itself would uh, uh, poke your eye out. Um, that was that was typically what we flew with. Um, I'm a big fan of rocket rocket personally because I think it's really fun to shoot 14 rockets. Uh, but then sure. I became a, a Apache pilot, so I got 19 per pod. So I was like, man, it's not really that cool anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so you actually got to go back to Afghanistan. Did you go back as an Apache pilot or was it Kiowa both times? I did. I went back as an Apache pilot uh, in 2019. Okay. And what was that deployment like? Actually, we were busy. Um, I kind of felt like we were going to show up there and, uh, you know, because you know how it is. No deployment is, is the same. Uh, but I thought that things were going to be significantly uh, quieter, and they were not. <laughs> so, you, you were in JBAD, weren't you? The ISIS fight. Uh, yep, it's uh, it's both down there, really. I mean, it's you know, not getting into the getting the details of the stuff that can you know get you in trouble. But um, yeah, you're you're fighting you're fighting a whole lot of whole lot of fronts down there, and they're fighting each other too. So. You know, which is kind of fun to watch when the two groups that you go after decide that they're going to fight each other instead. And you can just be like, yeah, sometimes it's a hell of a hard time to determine who is who. I'll tell you that. Uh, yeah. Like, you just kind of sit back and see who wins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not going to not going to get involved in, in that, you know. Yeah, that's uh, it's tricky. And as, as the war goes, or the war, you know, we hit twenty years this year. If we can't manage to extricate ourselves, um, it just gets more and more complicated, and new enemies show up. And yeah, that whole ISIS fight was a whole was a whole different thing. We'll do an episode on that someday, maybe. From the time that Afghanistan kicked off, you know, in the early two thousands to now, I mean, that country is. Even from when I was there the first time, you know, nine years later, eight years later, going back, or hell, yeah, I got yeah. back at thirteen and seven years, so six years, six years later, yeah. I mean, it just I was now I was in different I was in uh, different AORs, but it was very it's very different. I couldn't believe the amount of uh, lights. And, you know, houses with lights at night, even ones that were not in the built-up areas, you know. Um, that was crazy. And uh, seeing the paved roads, there were so many more paved roads uh, than there had ever been. I remember flying over Panjway at night and seeing lights in, like, every clot, and that blew my mind. Yeah, it wasn't like that when I was there in 12, I can tell you that, man. No. If it wasn't a fire... Like every now and then you'd see a light, but mostly it was just if they had a fire, you saw it, you know, under under MVG. But no, it was pretty dark out there. Well, a light in Panjway in 2012 was an extremely suspicious event. You you were you were in uh, Afghanistan for it was a year deployment for you, right? In yeah, 2012. It was. Yeah, yeah, but I was a, a late deployer uh, by about uh, three weeks, four weeks, and then I came back. Uh, I want to say a month and a half early too, because I had to. They had to have enough dwell time before I went to a, a school that they had put me in for. So it was really, it really wound up being about a, a nine month and couple day deployment. Uh, okay, so I mean, it ended up being almost about as long for you as it did for us then, because our, ours was a nine month by design. They had switched the ground guys over to nine month deployments. 
Um, we yeah. were actually the first, like one of the first units to do the nine month deployment. Yeah, the nine month thing is, I think it was a good move. I mean, even the Marine Corps was doing uh, shorter deployments than the Army. And I think yeah, they started I seeing people become complacent, uh, you know, after a while. Yeah. I mean, hell, you know. I mean, even in nine months, you know, month seven and a half, month eight, you're just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, my, They're shooting at my, us. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> well how yeah, close we, do you think that they are? Yeah, we've had that conversation um, a few times, how in that last couple of months it was our self-preservation instinct became much more, uh, uh, much less prevalent. Yeah. And uh, our... Our shadow, we kind of got cavalier with how we conducted ourselves in combat. Yeah. Just walking out, shooting the Gustav, walking back in, not trying to, you know, not trying to uh, do anything. Yeah. I mean, were there, were there any like, you know, lessons from that 2012 deployment that you kind of carried forward as an army aviator or as an officer in general? I mean, yeah, a lot, a lot of lessons actually. I mean, uh, Gosh, no, you know, no, no one's ever really asked me that question before. It's kind of a hard question to answer, I guess. Um, well, one, don't drink the water. That's probably uh, answer number one. Because <laughs> you will get the shits you uh, for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say out of that entire deployment, I would say the one lesson that I learned was uh, that you can really trust the people that you work with. You could trust that they're going to be there uh, to back you up. And uh, I always thought that I was a part of like a brotherhood uh, amongst the guys I flew with and the ground guys that we supported. But, you know, um, I mean, Curtis and I, you know, Luke have become friends. And, and, and I would say Curtis is probably one of my top, you know, one of my top buddies. Like I, I contact him constantly, like, you know, even before any of this stuff, I mean, Curtis and I became really good friends. Curtis and I would always see each other when every time I was in the area when he had moved to Seattle and I'd go back and see my wife's family. And, um, you know, we've stayed uh, in close contact. I probably talked to Curtis once a week. Um, so I would say the lessons that I learned really from there was that uh, the friendships that I made uh, amongst the guys that I could trust would be people that would always be my friend, uh, you know. I guess that's the best answer I have for that. I mean, there's a lot of like military answers for that and about leadership. Um, I had great leadership. I learned a lot about uh, what it takes not only to build credibility and trust and respect with ground troops, but also what it takes to maintain and gain that that same uh, respect and credibility uh, amongst the people in your own formation. Yeah. Sure, um, you know, learning that that uh, that very complex re- relationship between uh, the enlisted soldiers, uh, you know, that work like in our flight operations, or the people that fix our aircraft that keep us in the air. Um, those people are all very, very, very crucial to the support that you guys received out there, uh, and they'll and they'll never be, you know, known to you, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, because they weren't the guys that were, you know, they're putting steel on target overhead, mm-hmm. but they were, they were every bit of uh, influential in that uh, success as we were. Yeah, for sure. I mean, key on a good point. 
in the, you know, your first point, but also in your second point, which is, and this is something society has a tendency to like to forget, which is war is fought by people, human beings, you know? So this is a, a human connection that you make in a, in a space that is distinctively uh, a human experience. So it, it, it could, the bonds you can make can transcend uh, other experiences or other things that you might have just because of the extreme humanity of it and all of its terrible degrees and all of its beauty. So uh, usually at the back end of these things, Avery, we just like to give everybody a chance to say anything they want. I mean, if there's anything that, that we didn't cover or anything that you just kind of want to like get out there for people, uh, this is your chance. So take it away. I kind of was hesitant to, to do this uh, interview. <clears throat> and I'm sure that Curtis is, you know, I, I think I, I made that pretty apparent to him. And I think one of the reasons is uh, I worked with people who did far more than me. Um, I worked with people that were far better pilots, far more senior pilots, far more reliable uh, to the leadership and to the command than I was. Um, and I know that now as a more senior guy because, you know, you get looked to once you become a little more senior in, in that way and you start to re- you start to recognize the, the difference there uh, between the two. But it's just very important to me that the the people that are out there viewing this and they're learning about, uh, you know, this deployment from my perspective and where we all fought, uh, I think it's very, I, I, I can't stress how important it is that they know that, that they know that there were a lot of guys that are, aren't on this interview right now that quite frankly are fucking heroes and did some of the most amazing and astonishing things that you just wouldn't think possible that somebody would have uh, the intestinal fortitude to do that. And you see guys, uh, the ground guys do it too, you know, and it's, I mean, I'm just glad that I'm fortunate and and I feel very fortunate for that. We are not we live in a society where a lot of people don't have to deal with this. They'll never know what this was like. And, and, and um, those people need to know too, that that's okay. And that this isn't, this isn't something I want everybody to do. I don't want my kids to do this. You know, I've got two children and I, I don't, I don't want them to have to go through this or experience this, but I will say also because I have done that and because you guys have done that, I think that everyone, uh, here right now, you know, talking to each other could agree that, um, there's, there's negative side effects to this, but there's also a lot of the good that comes from it. And there's a lot of character that's built. And I think it changes people in in an, in an extremely, uh, positive way. And it can be, if it's seen that way, it's not always seen that way, but I'm very, I'm very proud of what I've done for my country. And I'm very proud of the people that I did it with and supported, uh, which were, you know, you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, that's hitting the nail on the head right there, brother. Yeah. And I, I kind of wanted to, to break from our, our tradition of giving you the last word, but I want to speak for myself and for, you know, everybody who was on the ground in that deployment. Uh, you know, if the, the word dark horse has a very special meaning for us. Yes. Um, yeah, obviously we knew you were Kyle pilots. So, but, the, just the 
the hearing that call sign on a radio evoked like a, you know, a feeling in us that I can't even really accurately describe today. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is that, well, one, like what you guys did for us is the reason I, I became a pilot one, two, like what you guys did for us is the reason that I came home at all. Um, and it's from the bottom of my heart and the bottom of, and I'll, I'll go ahead and speak for other people that aren't on this interview. Thank you. Because your, your guys' audacity, your willingness to take those risks with yourself and your aircraft, to spend your nine-hour shift bouncing between five troops and contacts, grabbing a rip at Passab as your only... like I don't care that you slept in a hot cot at the end of the day. I know how hard you worked and what it meant. And I want you to know what it meant to us to have you up there. Because, quite frankly, we don't get home. A lot of our guys don't make it home within the golden hour, so they don't make it home. Um, so, so thank you, man. Like we're really big time, big thanks to the people who flew there for us in Panjway. Um, I'm sure that everybody that I, that I flew with, like I said, I won't speak on their behalf, but I'm, I can guarantee you that they were all, uh, very glad to do it. Cool. Well, appreciate you, Avery. Thanks for taking the time, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, having me on guys. Pretty, uh, pretty, pretty exciting. Yeah, it's cool stuff. <laughs> All right, later.